Welcome back to Bitcoin Magazine Live. As Alex had mentioned just before we broke for the break, uh, I've hijacked the, the live stream now, and we are doing our first ever Bitcoin book club segment. And I'm really excited to bring on one of uh, someone I consider a friend and one of the very first Bitcoin books I ever had the opportunity to read. Uh, Andy Edstrom has joined me, and he wrote the book, Why Buy Bitcoin. Andy, thank you so much for coming on. Q, it's great to be here with you, man. Awesome to see you. Love what you're doing with the show. I really appreciate that, man. Um, I'd like to just, you know, start by having you share your story of how you were orange pilled. Who, who was the person that you owe an immense amount of gratitude towards? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm a three exposure guy. Um, first read an article in the Economist in 2013. Didn't get it at all. Saw an art- article in the uh, Wall Street Journal in 2016. That was about actually Ethereum and the and the Dow hard fork. Didn't get it that time. Then it was a guy named Arun Rao, who's really smart. He actually comes from legacy finance, just like me. And he actually did an AI startup subsequently, which uh, which he sold. So he put it on my radar in, I think, first quarter 2017. And so, yeah, if the question is like, you know, who, who made me start to pay attention? I guess I have to credit uh, my smart friend, Arun. Awesome. Well, shout out Arun. Thank you for... Uh setting Andy on this path. And, you know, in a, in a past life, you were really much, much more focused on like traditional finance and a financial advisor. So like, what was that sort of shift of mindset from like traditional fiat investing to digital gold, if you will? Yeah. Now I love that question, Q. And, you know, I'm one of those guys who has spent almost two decades now in finance and even after a decade and a half, you know, made my money, made my bread and butter using money every day without understanding what money is. This is one of the things I write about in the preface to the book is like, that's pretty shocking, right? (laughs) Pretty shocking that people make entire careers in this world of money without understanding the underlying characteristics. So, so yeah, it was eye-opening to me. I mean, certainly finding Bitcoin and really doing the work and asking the hard questions and then building my thesis around what Bitcoin really was and what it could be in the future, that made me question a lot of assumptions. I mean, really, I didn't understand the underlying characteristics of money uh, before I found Bitcoin. And that was part of my, it was a key part, in fact, of my exploration in the book was, okay, if in Econ 101, they told me that money is a store of value and a medium of exchange and a unit of account, like, so what? What makes something a good store of value or medium of exchange or unit of account? And that was the next level exploration for me. And people were talking about, oh, there's you know five characteristics of money or there's six or seven characteristics of money. And so I thought really hard about it. And I unfortunately came up with 14. <laughs> and so, you know, I was hoping it would be an, an easy solution, right? Like, oh yeah, just remember these, you know, five characteristics and that'll tell you what the best money is. And it ain't that simple, unfortunately. So that's one of the key tenets of the book is, okay, there's 14 characteristics of money. No form of money scores well on all the characteristics, right? It's it's sort of, it's a spectrum along each characteristic and different kinds of money score well in certain areas and poorly in others. And so really getting a deep understanding of Bitcoin for me was lining Bitcoin up along these characteristics, these parameters, 
scoring it, you know, scoring it versus the dollar, scoring it versus gold, and then also thinking about, okay, where does Bitcoin sit today in terms of its characteristics and where is it heading in the future? And surprise, surprise, because of all the great work done on the base layer and uh, incremental improvements, plus all the functionality being built on layer two, layer three, et cetera, et cetera, um, Bitcoin score is going up with time, right? Whereas the dollar is getting worse because they're printing more of them faster and gold kind of ain't changing, right? It's basically static. Love that. I mean, during your research and I highly recommend anyone listening who's curious, like Andy does such a great job of really dissecting what is money, both like using historical anecdotes as well as present day terminology to like bring it back to fiat world. Um, Can you touch on maybe like one or two things that surprised you during that research or something that just like has forever been ingrained in you as a result of this? Yeah, I think a couple of things come to mind. So one is this counterintuitive conclusion about money which is that the best money is the thing that's worst at anything else. And this really took me a while to get my head around. I mean, at least months and months and months to internalize this. Because one thing you're constantly hearing out of even just the regular Austrian economist crowd is, oh, you know, useful money has to be useful for something other than as money. Either that's because that's how it becomes adopted over time or because there's some requirement of, let's say, either intrinsic value or utility value. And this could not be further from the truth, right? The reality is the best and most effective money is useless as anything other than money. And it stands to reason why that would be because one of the frameworks I used in the book is, I think it's Carl Menger. And there's three sort of major classes of uh, goods in the economy. So there's consumption goods, right? Just like food and clothing and the stuff we use every day. And then there's capital goods, right? Which are those investment assets that allow us to create uh, those consumption goods, right? To, to basically make more of them. And then there's the monetary good. But the lines are all blurry, right? So everything in the economy has some characteristics that are consumption good, some that are capital good, and some that are monetary good. And so, you know, while, while, I don't know, cigarettes are decent money. I mean, they're not great money compared to you know other forms, but they can be used as money. So they're in part a consumption good and part a monetary good. You know, likewise, a lot of capital goods, um, even Apple stock, right, is a little bit money. This is another insight I, I realized, which is we in, in legacy finance land, we think about liquidity, okay? Liquidity is really important. Can I buy or sell or exchange this asset that I'm investing in? And one of the realizations I had was, oh, liquidity is in some sense moneyness. And so the example I used in the book is, okay, if I'm going to buy a bunch of apartment buildings and I pay, let's say, 15 times cash flow for those assets, um, but they're illiquid, right? It's hard to buy and sell real estate. Now what happens if I take this basket of real estate, this apartments, and I float it in a real estate investment trust, which trades publicly, which is now more liquid, what might it be worth? Oh, instead of be worth, being worth 15 times cash flow, it might be worth 20 times cash flow. So the difference in my mind between 15 times and 20 times is the liquidity, but it's also sort of the moneyness. Um, another example, right, is like a, a concert ticket or an airplane ticket. If you buy a concert ticket for $200, but it's only you 
that's allowed in, right? You can't resell it. There's no secondary market. Okay, what would you be willing to pay for that same ticket if you could transact it? Like if you get sick and you can't go to the concert, okay, you can sell it to somebody else. Well, you'd pay some premium. Maybe you'd pay 250 for it instead of 200. Again, that's the liquidity premium. That's the moneyness. So this notion of moneyness being an adjective rather than a noun, but then the thing that is sort of most money, in other words, it's the least anything else. It's the least capital good or investment good. It's the least um, you know, utility or consumption good. Um, that tends to become used as quote unquote money in the noun form. So that's another, that was another major realization um, for me when thinking about, oh, what is money? And then also, uh, yeah, how does Bitcoin fit in? And uh, what does it mean for, for having a, a real robust analytical framework around what's better money, what's worse money? Awesome. I mean, you put it really well about the liquidity having a premium, if you will, and increasing or decreasing value as a result. Um, I'd love to, you know, dissect a little bit further on what you're kind of talking about. Like we talk, we're talking right now and like some, someone in the comments, if you have a better idea of this, genuinely the only way I see you can consume money is if you're that jackass who like lights your cigar with a hundred dollar bill. But to Andy's point beyond that, like you are strictly transacting with your fiat dollars, whatever you're using that for becomes a consumption good or however else you need to sort of survive, if you will. Um, but at least with Bitcoin now, you have both that monetary aspect of it and the fast liquidity of it. Is, is there anything else of what you were finding that set Bitcoin apart from fiat that maybe doesn't get touched on a lot? Yeah, well, there's definitely plenty that sets it apart from, uh, from fiat other than it you know, being quote unquote perfect money in the sense that you described, which is, yeah, I mean, fiat money. Yes, you can technically use the twenty dollar bill uh, to uh, to heat yourself if you're freezing to death, or you know, or I don't know, roll it up, roll it up to smoke something. But that's about it. Um, and then, likewise, Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin has no significant alternative use. Um, I think another realization I had, um, which is counterintuitive, I think some people have figured it out, but I but I struggled with it for a while. Is that is that the volatility is a feature, not a bug, right? And so when we're talking about volatility, I'm talking about, let's say, volatility in purchasing price, which today we generally measure in dollars. And obviously I'm talking about, okay, number goes up, number goes down, price goes up, price goes down. Now in my 14 characteristics, I distinguish between short-term stability and long-term stability. This is where this, you see the difference between, well, let's say the dollar and gold, okay? The dollar, very short-term stable. Uh, but not so long-term stable, right? As they print more, it inflates away. Gold is the opposite, very long-term stable, you know, whatever the classic example, price of a man's suit, you know, a thousand years ago and 500 years ago and 2000 years ago, like it hasn't really changed. Um, but short-term, actually the purchasing power of gold is kind of volatile. Okay, so I used to think that short-term volatility for Bitcoin was a problem, that it was a bug. Because, oh, you know, it sucks as a medium of exchange, Right. If you're going to, if you intend to use Bitcoin to purchase something a day or two from now, it's not great because you don't know what your purchasing power is going to be a day or two from now. And I think that would be a problem for Bitcoin's long term adoption if we thought that it was going to be that way forever. But what I realized was okay, first of all, in the first, let's say, 11 to 12 years, the Bitcoin has had a price. Like, yeah, it's been real volatile 
but the volatility has been decreasing over time. So if that pattern continues, basically the, the vol is going to reduce and reduce and reduce and reduce. Now, will we ever get to you know, a volatility that's lower than gold? I don't know. But if we got anywhere near that, the purchasing ability or the transactability, the usability of Bitcoin as money, it's going to be substantially increased. And in the meantime, we get to watch the central bankers and the politicians point at it and laugh and say, oh, that's not money. You can't use that for, uh, for purchase and exchange. And we over in Bitcoin land say, yep, you're right. It's not money. You know, don't, don't worry about us uh, over here in the corner uh, building Bitcoin. And by the time we get to a situation where Bitcoin, Bitcoin's volatility is much lower, and by the way, that could be a decade from now, it could even be two decades from now, then it'll be too late, right? It'll, it'll be a hyper-Bitcoinized world. Everyone will own this asset. And um, basically, it will be unambiguously impossible to, uh, to push down, to kill, to damage. By the way, in my opinion, we've already reached that level, but... Um, but if there was any doubt about uh, whether we'd be there in the future, you know, there, there isn't any more in my mind. So that's the other piece that sort of comes to my, you know, what, top of my head. What makes you think, and, and for me, I, I do agree with you in the sense that we are fast approaching this level of muted volatility, if you will. We've, we've essentially been hanging out between 30,000 and the all-time high of 69,000 for some time, which, yes, this is a widespread. However, in the grand scheme of the way Bitcoin spread has looked year over year, we're actually starting to shrink that down and we're seeing that volatility go down. There was the meme coming out, what was it, last week, where it was the greed and fear index was at 90 this time last year when we broke 40K, but at this point, when we're coming back down to 40K, it's at like a 10. So it, it just goes to show you that literally the same price level, just 12 months apart, not even 11 months apart, because it wasn't until after the Super Bowl that Elon made the announcement and then Bitcoin broke above 40K. So it's 11 months, how quickly we seem to forget. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is normal for Bitcoin. Um, this kind of vol is, yeah, I mean, it's really just not out of the ordinary. And again, I, you know, people, I th think about the potential, you know, the potential value for Bitcoin and all the markets that it can nibble away at, right? Okay, the clearest is gold. That's fine. We still got a 10x on that alone, probably, right? Which is Bitcoin, you know, effectively replacing gold as store of value. Okay, once we've taken that beachhead, right? Okay, now the fall will be that much lower. Um, okay, if bonds are still giving us negative inflation adjusted yields right negative real yields okay bitcoin's gonna eat into that market meanwhile you know how many real estate investors uh, are going to be thinking hmm maybe instead of owning that second or third or fourth uh property um basically as a store of value especially if it's in a different jurisdiction you know or far away from my primary residence maybe i'll own some bitcoin because that's uh yeah harder to locate um uh, for tax purposes, as well as I can walk across a border with it. Um, and so you're just going to see, you know, like, will Bitcoin replace or eat significantly into the fiat, into the fiat market? Yes, if it reaches its potential. Will it happen anytime soon? I don't know. I mean, I hope we get more, uh, we get more El Salvador's in the, in the short term. But in the meantime, there's just so many ways for Bitcoin to win. There's so many ways for Bitcoin to eat market share from these different uh, investment assets as well as monetary use cases that, uh, yeah, I think, uh, what can I say? I think it's a bright future for Bitcoin.
Uh, I love the optimism, and at the same time, it's a little muted. You don't want to get too ahead of yourself, and you're. I love the even keelness of it. Um, this is something also cue that I, that I struggle with, right? Because when I put out the book, you know, I had the I had the price target in my head, like where can Bitcoin go, and then I had the uh, normie land, like what's within the Overton window of things that you know of, of ranges that people can even contemplate in their in their minds you know for where bitcoin could go and so anyway suffice to say you know i've, I've increased my price target from what i had in the book uh which i put out two years ago um but yeah we you know in normie slash legacy finance land i think people are thinking in terms of trillions to maybe tens of trillions you know we we in hardcore bitcoin land are thinking in excess of 100 trillion ultimately and who knows how long that takes and uh, the good news as, from an investment perspective, um, or even someone who's just wanting to store their wealth over, over a decently long period of time, is that the upside in either of those cases is quite substantial, and you get all these great benefits of unseizability, uncensorability, um, yeah, ability to uh, take it with you wherever, uh, wherever you go. And um, so, yeah, just, just a lot of ways to win. Love that. And I, I love how, you know, even over time, you continue to adjust. I, uh, I have to keep reminding myself that a 10x in Bitcoin value, roughly 500K of Bitcoin, is the market cap of gold. And that in and of itself will be an accomplishment. But I do believe we have much further to go beyond that as well. Yeah. And by the way, just, just to interject there, and I know maybe one of the topics we're going to hit on possibly is inflation, which is, you know, that's gold's value today. Um, another good question to ask is, if we continue in an inflationary environment, which I still believe we will, it's one of the things I talked about in my book when I put it out two years ago, that was before COVID. I got an assist, I got an assist from COVID, uh, unfortunately, right, on, uh, on the inflationary outlook. So we'll see how it plays out. But suffice to say that in historical periods of high inflation, the most recent being the 1970s, but you know the 40s being relevant also. Gold did really well, so you know is bitcoins from just eating gold. Are we talking about yeah? Are we talking about half a million dollar Bitcoin, or are we really talking about a million dollar Bitcoin? Because in a sustained higher inflationary environment, probably gold gets capitalized at least double uh, where it is today. So yeah, big. Big, big upside just from uh, from that potential outcome. Um, you're absolutely right. And, and you're honestly, let's just dive into this because this was the main bread and butter of the conversation that I wanted to have with you. So as Andy mentioned, he wrote the book in and it was released in 2019. I had the opportunity to read this back in 2020. And this was when I read it, like COVID had just started. Again, cannot stress this enough. This was written before COVID was like, word we didn't even think about it the idea of massive inflation was like an afterthought it was a joke and andy was sounding the alarms there were there were things that you were noticing that just didn't sit right with you based on what you understood in legacy finance do you mind sharing a couple of those things that sort of made you a little hesitant and start to believe that if and when this inflation comes to us it's going to be much worse than we think yeah happy to do it so the thing about writing this book and writing about the possibility of inflation was that the numbers were so enormous that 
you know, it was like, it was like hitting, it was like banging me over the head. It was that obvious. Um, which is part of why I wrote the book. It was like, Oh, this is, you know, I'm so sure of this thing that I have to put it into words. And so the big underlying problem of course was the debt. So since leaving the gold standard, right. It, one of the things I have in the book is I have basically a century of debt and it's debt to GDP. So it's just comparing total debt in the economy. I'm talking about government debt, municipal debt, corporate debt, household debt. You just add it all together, the total. And what you see is under the Bretton Woods gold-linked standard um, from 19, whatever it was, 1944 to 71, debt to GDP was pretty flat. Surprise, surprise. When you're on a hard money standard, it's hard to just print outrageous amount of money and therefore incentivize uh, the incurrence of tons of debt. And then when we left the gold standard, it just takes off with like a rocket ship. And so I looked at the numbers and the original source on that, by the way, was Ray Dalio. It was one of his research reports or books. Can't remember which one. I thought to myself, oh my God, the debt to GDP level is already at a record by American standards and by global standards. And that's before we include the entitlements, right? The unfunded social security, the unfunded Medicare. And so if debt to GDP was, I don't know, three, call it 330%, when I was putting this on paper, right? The entitlements were like another thousand percent. Okay. Again, all before COVID. And so, so the total liability burden was just enormous. And so I went through the logic and I thought, okay, when there's too much debt historically, you know, what are, what are, the, what are the outs? Like how, how can it uh, resolve itself when you get to the end of a big debt cycle? And there's the, uh, there's the menu of bad options for dealing with too much debt. And so there's the usual ones like austerity. Okay, live within your means. All right, well, good luck politically, right? Impossible because of the election cycle. Um, you know, there's this concept of uh, a jubilee, right? Just for biblical times, you know, every time there's a new ruler, just like reset the ledger, get rid of the debts. Okay, well, that calls into question things like property rights and contract law. And uh, it's tough to run an economy effectively without those things. Um, what if you just let it go? What if you just normalize interest rates and uh, let it rip? What was that? What would that look like? Uh, probably a Great Depression. So unlikely that's going to happen. Now, there are some other options. You can tax and redistribute. We're seeing some of that, uh, especially under democratic regimes, although it ebbs and flows. Um, you get financial repression, right? That's ongoing. Um, that's included in that is, is basically the inability to earn any significant interest in a, in a bank account. Ultimately, we may end up with capital controls. I mean, we'll see how it goes. And then, of course, the easiest or let's say most politically pal palatable way out is, is inflation. And so it's just by process of elimination that you look at, oh, there's way too much debt and uh, the thing can't go on forever, even though it can go on longer than we think. And what are the options for getting rid of the debt? And the most likely just seem to be, uh, seem to be inflation. And, and it's not from any you know, brilliant analysis. It's just from an analysis of history. Um, process of elimination of those options, and then looking at cases of significant inflation and cases where there was too much debt that accumulated in an economy. This has happened, you know, dozens of times through history, at least. And um, it's basically uh, it's basically just simple math, as Greg Foss would say. You know, so 
whatever, whatever high school math or grade school math. My fellow plebs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. It's kind of scary that, uh, you know, to your point, like we see these things happening in these other countries. We're, we're watching Argentina having dealt with this for the last four or five years. I know Venezuela has been in a crisis for God knows how many years at this point. And then Turkey is is on its last legs. I mean, these are, these are no longer countries that don't necessarily have their own central banks. These are not countries that are just like developing nations that no one, no one deals with. There's no business coming out of. These are genuine countries that the global economy does interact with on a regular basis. And, you know, if we start to see one or two of these dominoes falls, it's, there's no telling where the end of this is. That's right. And Um, you know, what's interesting about that cue though also is you think about how this whole game could play out. And it's just kind of beautiful because what we're seeing already is we're seeing inklings, those cases you mentioned, you know, really weak currencies starting to die off. Um, and we're seeing the dollar start to get spread through more of the world via stable coins, right? And so you're seeing, you know, there's always this political concern that, oh, you know, Bitcoin succeeds, it's going to eat the dollar or destroy the dollar. Okay. Maybe sometime far in the future, but probably no time soon. I guess this is the counter argument to, you know, oh, hyper Bitcoinization is going to happen before the next halving. I kind of doubt it. And by the way, I'm glad that I kind of doubt it because I think we actually really do have a good shot at a, tre- at a peaceful transition over a multi year time period onto a Bitcoin standard. But in the meantime, it's, yeah, it seems now much more likely that crypto dollars or stable coins or whatever form that takes. CVDC, who knows, is more likely to, to start picking off some of these weaker foreign currencies. And then meanwhile, Bitcoin continues to grow in the background, right? Con- t- continues to be adopted as a uh, store of value. It gets stronger and stronger in the hash rate, more distributed and more feature functionality built on top on layer two and layer three. And it, uh, I mean, I'd, it would, I'd be hard pressed to imagine sort of a better setup for the long-term adoption of, of Bitcoin, you know, over, over years and decades. So it gives me a lot of hope. I, I don't disagree. I definitely think that the slow and steady approach to this is better longevity. I do also kind of, I think for, for myself, at least I larger picture, I don't see a world where the U S dollar, which is reign supreme for at this point now, 80 years, like I don't see a world and, and, it could genuinely be because I've never seen a world without the U.S. dollar. I don't see the 
the dollar just disappearing. There's too much, I think there's too much wealth in it that those who stand to lose the most by the dollar just like being eliminated would never stand for that. And they would genuinely, I believe, go to war to back the dollar to prevent that. Um, yeah, but- and also and also, there's the liability side, which is one, one of the things that's great news for being along the dollar is that, that, yeah, the amount of dollar liabilities in the world is so huge that there there is, and for a very, very long time, will be a need for dollars just to settle those debts that were created basically out of thin air um, outside of the U.S. banking system, right? This is something Jeff Snyder talks a lot about. The euro dollar system basically is countries and banks and financial systems and entities that have created dollar liabilities out of nothing um, and have no ability to print more of the dollars, eventually those liabilities have to get settled in time. And so there's going to be that, there's going to be that steady bid. I shouldn't say steady, but let's say significant ongoing long lived bid under the U S dollar just on account of, of the amount of, uh, of liabilities that, uh, that are out there. And so we shouldn't get, you know, I shouldn't be too Pollyannish. I shouldn't be, you know, so, too confident about. Oh, everything's going to be great. It's going to be a long-term peaceful transition. There won't be any hiccups. I'm not saying that. Um, the reality is nobody knows what the what the timing will be for for the monetary reset that will eventually happen. Um, but I am just observing that a lot of the facts and circumstances do line up reasonably well for a long-term transition. Uh, long-term transition over time. And we and we're starting to see the game theory play out. I mean, it's one thing for El Salvador to basically go on a Bitcoin standard. Um, it's another thing for other governments of the world to start to realize that in a more competitive world for money, they may be required to at least part partly back their you know existing fiat systems. And this again gets to the scoring of you know for fourteen characteristics of money and you know which ones score better. And which ones score worse? Okay, if you've got a really crappy fiat currency, maybe to compete in this world, you're going to have to back one-to-one with Bitcoin. That's effectively what El Salvador has done. Okay, and if you're the big dog who has huge network effects already, that's the dollar, maybe you have to compete a little more ultimately, which means, okay, maybe you partially back with Bitcoin or, I don't know, some combination of, of Bitcoin and gold. There's, there's different, you know, we, Bitcoiners a lot of time think in terms of dichotomies and black and white and you know oh bitcoin's the hardest so like it'll eat everything and it's going to happen tomorrow i think we can see a competitive dynamic play out over years where some governments are uh incentivized let's say others would say forced into making their monies or their currencies incrementally harder with time and with policy and some will fail abysmally at that Others will succeed and it'll be competitive. But yeah, you can see, I can see different shades of gray along a spectrum for what is backing, you know, fiat currency one versus fiat currency two and how much hard money asset sits behind this one versus, versus another based on sort of where they started in, uh, in history. So I want to, I want to do a little bit of a thought experiment off of this because like you touch on in, and correct me if I'm wrong, but so many, if not a majority of the world currencies, if they're not backed, 
if they are a central bank, they are essentially backed by the U.S. dollar, whatever dollars that they tend to hold in a reserve current in their reserves, however that may be. Yep. What and there are examples of other countries, and I'm gonna unfortunately not be able to cite my coworker colleague who brought this up last week about the debt to GDP ratio and specifically reaching a negative 151 in that ratio. Uh, there have been are negative 150 in that ratio. There are 51 examples of countries reaching that threshold and 50 of them defaulted with the one exception being Japan because they just tied themselves and their dollar to the US stock market. But there's no US stock market for us to turn around and do that in. But what if, and I've, I've long believed that the approach during this money printing period should have been instead of going and buying like beat up equities and, and bailing out our, our failing businesses. Look at the airlines is the perfect example of, we just gave them billions of dollars and they are completely shitting the bed. Excuse my language. What that if- one drives me crazy, by the way, the, the airline bailout drives me nuts. I still talk to people who say, Oh, you know, the industry would have gone away. It would have all liquidated. No, it wouldn't dude. <laughs> There's still airplanes. There's still, you know, assets and collateral, you know, that had debt pledged against it. And the debt owners would have taken the collateral and they would have started new businesses. And that's what should have happened. Yes. Anyway, sorry, I, I cut you off, but, but no, I can't, couldn't help I, myself. I 100% agree with that. Like I'm a pure, pure market capitalist. And I believe it was the CEO of JetBlue who had in like, had already applied for the LLC, had started putting in work to start buying out all of the American airline routes. They were going to just buy everything. And then because they got the bailout, he was just like, well, I can't start this airline, but this would have essentially been a cheaper airline than what was being offered because that's what the competitive market is looking for right now. But because the government stepped in, I can't give you that. So instead, and the real reason I was bringing all of this up was not to shit on the airlines, even though my producer, Chris, knows how much I hate Delta right now. Um, It was really because what if instead of spending $7 billion to give it to American, United, and everyone else, we had at that time bought $7 billion worth of Bitcoin? Like what, like that could have been that stock market or that market, that monetary value that we tied our dollar to and let it rip. Amazing. I love that. I love that scenario. My God, what a, what a, what a missed opportunity. We bailed out these crappy companies that haven't turned a net profit, you know, over the long term ever, essentially. And instead of letting those assets move into stronger hands that would have managed them better. Yeah, we, we subsidized bad management and missed an opportunity to accumulate the world's hardest money that uh, you know we could have used to back our dollar and, and uh, provided the dollar with the dominant position for who knows how much longer than it otherwise will you know will have. Yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunately a nice little cycle that we continue to to go down. Um, and there's there was one other thing that you kind of touched on earlier before I went on my little mini rant anti airlines was you know the dollar the the cost of just holding dollars right now has never been more expensive, especially with how we're seeing inflation. But even over the last like five to 10 years, if you, I believe it was Ally Bank for a while, was like the only like high interest rate savings account, an all online bank, like we'll give you all the money. But that was at best, they were offering 2.2%. So that just at normal times was offsetting inflation. Mm -hmm. And then now you're literally losing money by holding money money in any sort of like fiat standard or just holding on to dollars. 
you brought up how Apple stock can actually be some form of a currency. And I have for the last couple of years, frankly, treated equities as my form of like a checking account, if you will. Like I don't want dollars. I'd rather be tied and have things in Microsoft stock or Apple stock where fine, it might lose 10% of value, but over the last few, we just lost 7% of value in the US dollar in just one year. That's in my lifetime, never happened. It is a very interesting and scary world. I guess what I'd like to hear from you are, what are things that you've been doing to prepare yourself for this inflation time? What have you been doing since we've been in this inflation time? Yeah, so a few things there. I mean, first of all, my, <laughs> well, I'll start with the Microsoft. Um, and I'll just start about what I do for clients, right? So, you know, I'm a wealth manager. I manage money for clients. And so I've seen ever since writing the book and actually a couple of years before I saw the possibility of significant inflation. So actually for the first time in my firm's history, 35 year history, the firm, um, we bought gold for the first time, I think in 2016. Okay. And that was puncturing you know, the, uh, this barrier of, oh, I'll never own anything that doesn't own or that doesn't generate cash flows. Right. So I was sort of raised as a value investor. I mean, I, I did a lot of teching, a decent amount of tech investing as well. So I understood the growth side of it, but basically the notion that I would ever want to buy or own something that didn't have cash flows was totally anathema to me until I sort of finally started to figure it out. Okay. So one is we got gold exposure. Secondly, we got Bitcoin exposure for clients. And that was also part of the story of writing the book was like, I knew I wanted to get exposure for my clients and I knew they were going to vomit all over it, right? Because it was, it was January of 2019. Bitcoin was down from almost 20K to 3K. And I just knew that this is going to be a problematic uh, discussion for clients. So I knew I'd have to have some, some written ammo to back it up. So, so obviously the second piece has been buying Bitcoin. Uh, in decent percentage uh, for clients. Okay, myself, well, let's talk about the portfolio. So I'm the only uh, financial advisor I know who has a 10% allocation to what I call hard money assets. And the hard money asset of the past, of course, was gold and monetary metals. And the hard money asset of today in the future, in my view, is Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin has been eating that hard money asset you know, category in my clients' portfolios. Um, so that's going on. Um, me personally, obviously, I own Bitcoin. Um, obviously, I'm not going to tell you how much, but um, <laughs> I consider owning Bitcoin to be uh, core to my strategy for being uh, financially resistant to inflation over time. Um, now there's the bigger the bigger picture, and this is where things get uh, you know get a little dicier. Which is, I do think that we are going to go through a reset probably this decade, like how much longer can they keep the fiat edifice standing? Before the book or before COVID, I probably would have said, yeah, they could do it for a decade and maybe a little longer. Now, post-COVID with all the incremental money printing, I don't think we're going to last another decade. <laughs> I think we're going to see the reset sooner. Oh, so, I, so look, I got three kids. I got a family. What I know or what history tells me is that things get dicey uh, in these kinds of resets. Usually they're violent. Usually there's either a major internal conflict in the country or an external conflict. Both of those are quite possible. You know, China is the obvious out, 
outside the country, outside the border enemy. Um, you know, we know what's going on internally, politically. Um, I'd like to be flexible. Would I like to own property in a different jurisdiction? Yes, I would. Um, you know, and property, by the way, historically is like pretty inflation proof. Although, <laughs> here's the problem with real estate today as an investment and as a hedge against inflation. There's two problems. One is the last time real estate was a good inflation hedge was in the 1970s, and it did work pretty well as an inflation hedge. But the valuations on real estate were much lower, right? The multiples of cash flow, however you want to measure them, um, were far lower than they are today. I mean, even just the housing market, I don't know, like a, like the average house price back then was, I don't know, maybe four or five times household income, and now it's nine or 10 times, right? Um, so there's that issue. And then the second issue, as we know, is housing is seen as a store of value. It is used for that purpose. And so when I think about among the global assets, which is hundreds of trillions of dollars, maybe in an excess of a quadrillion dollars, depending on how you measure it, you know, which asset classes are going to lose the most to Bitcoin? And I think in my mind, you know, between negative yielding bonds and real estate, it's somewhat of a toss up. Maybe the negative, you know, maybe the bond market stands more to lose to Bitcoin, but I think that real estate is going to lose a decent chunk over the long run in terms of market share of value to Bitcoin. And so I'm, yeah, I'm a, le I'm a lot less excited basically about owning real estate heading into an inflationary environment than I would have been in the same circumstances, you know, like in the, in the 1970s, for example. And the 70s was that period when gold really outperformed, right? Gold went from $35 an ounce to something like $700 an ounce, right? The, the bottom to the peak was, was 20x in roughly a decade. And, you know, today that's much more likely to happen uh, for Bitcoin uh, than it is for gold. Certainly, that's what we've seen in the last 18 months, right? Gold, gold has been uh, basically left for dead so far, uh, uh, while well, Bitcoin is up by a multiple. So these are some of the preparations I've made. And when I think about, you know, in the shorter to medium term, let's leave aside, you know, what, what happens to uh, the structuring of society a decade from now. Leave that aside for the moment. What am I doing for clients right now? And what's likely to happen in the next few years? My best guess is that, we stick with equities or we stick with stocks for the most part, we probably shift toward value and away from growth because value stocks tend to do better in an inflationary environment. And then we probably see what we've already been seeing, which is the fixed income or the bond portfolio lose share to that hard money asset portfolio. And the hard money asset segment you know, is getting eaten basically by Bitcoin. That's kind of how I see it. So I, I want to kind of ask because like, because real estate has been introduced into the public markets over the last 20 years in a way that the public markets never saw, do you, does that have a larger impact to Bitcoin's ability to overtake real estate? Because essentially real estate now is becoming no different than just a traditional investment vehicle as far as stocks go versus like what it traditionally was, which like when I was in college, we always we learned the theory that as the stock market goes up, the housing market is supposed to inversely go down and vice versa, but we don't see that anymore. So does that play an effect, do you think at least? Or Well, I think you asked a really interesting question there, Q, which is, yeah, in this era when it used to be that the real estate market was purely private, 
right? There were no, you know, floated exchange traded or no significant amount of volume of basically publicly traded real estate investment assets. So yeah, those assets are more liquid. They're more money-like and arguably in that regard, maybe more resistant to losing share uh, to Bitcoin, maybe. Um, so however, however, my understanding of the real estate market is it's still the vast majority of total value that is still privately held, or at least not in uh, publicly traded instruments like real estate investment trusts that uh, you know that can basically trade on a day to day basis. Because you've got still the housing market. Like yes, you had these institutional buyers, you know Blackstone and others that came showed up basically in the last decade and started hoovering up uh, houses uh, because they could uh, they could use leverage and had a, a lower cost of capital basically than the average American. So the average American has been, you know, losing the opportunity to buy a house to some of these institutional buyers. Despite that fact, there's still a relatively small amount of the market, and the housing market itself, in terms of total real estate, is is the biggest component, right? And not only is it the biggest component already, but even all the more so because if the commercial real estate market uh, had been performing relatively well up until the pandemic, now we've got this sea change, like. Who wants to own commercial real estate right now? I mean, depending on who your customer is, you know, if you're serving big tech companies that A, have tons of money to spend and B, basically kind of afford to have lots of office space, even though their workers are, are often working remote. Okay, like there's some niches that are probably going to do fine. But yeah, regular way retail, regular way office space, uh, this stuff is in retreat, in my view, you know, probably permanently. I mean, I think there's a permanent impairment in that market. And so the, there's just all these sort of idiosyncratic factors in real estate that I think you have to factor into to the overall analysis. But I do take your point that if you wind back the clock 20 or 30 years, it was a smaller component of the real estate market that was available to be publicly uh, traded or, you know, bought and sold basically in a, in a brokerage account. Yeah. Um, I did want to also sort of give you the opportunity to any, any sort of bullet points on the book that we didn't really get to touch on. I know we have a, a little bit of time left here and I don't want to keep hijacking it with things that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. No worries. I mean, we talked about some of the big ideas, which is the 14 characteristics of money. Also the, what is money? Also the, uh, you know, the, the counterintuitive fact that the best money is only useful as money, as well as this notion of liquidity uh, being sort of the moneyness of non-money goods and services in the economy, you know, like consumption goods, as well as capital goods. Those are really important concepts. Um, you know, obviously, we talked about the huge debt problem, and this really springs to life when you, when you delve into the numbers. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, look, there's also the FUD. I mean, there's the 40 pages of FUD, right, is what I call the risk, uh, the risk section of the book. And I don't know if I hit all of them, but I, I think I hit most of them. And, uh, you know, there's probably I've got like four different categories of, uh, you know, FUD, whether it's the, you know, the social and societal versus the, you know, the psychological, the technical risks, the political risks, the economic risks. And I think what's interesting is that not that much has changed along these risk parameters 
in the last couple of years, other than Bitcoin has just continued to grow and thrive. Um, clearly, you know, all the or most of the mining capacity getting pushed out of China, that did <laughs> remove or reduce one of the major potential risks to Bitcoin as people saw it. Um, we also got with that, though, a new risk, which is you know, are we going to end up with more than half the hash power in the U.S.? Uh, I'd rather it were in the U.S. than China, but I'd also rather it not be in the U.S. You know, I'd like to see uh, I'd like to see more hash in South America, in Africa, you know, basically any anywhere else uh, other than the U.S. As much as I love that uh, that the U.S. is uh, is now clearly safe for Bitcoin and that the U.S. mining industry, especially in Texas, uh, you know, is is just mushrooming and thriving. I think that's all great. Um, but yeah, as far as um, as far as uh, you know, other risks and major concepts in the book are concerned, um, I think people, if they want to give family or friends or their or normie folks, you know, a useful framing that uh, you know that's that's basically designed to be readable for uh, for a layman, but also leaven in quite a few details. Um, you know, I think that was the goal, one of the goals that I had, uh, you know, for the book. It's shorter than some books uh, that you can find out there, um, although it's probably longer than a couple of them. But um, yeah, you know, the, the goal is basically just to take a, take a guy's journey, a legacy finance guy's journey, uh, including some anecdotes from, uh, from my time in Wall Street. Um, and bring that forward to uh, to today and framing Bitcoin, and that's that's kind of the idea, I guess. As I'm talking about it, you know, one of the things that's worth obviously mentioning is that like nothing's since the global financial crisis, you know, the major problems with the with the banking system and the debt system haven't really been solved. I mean, yes, you know, when I was sitting on the on the desk uh, in the financing group and the investment banking group at Goldman. Um, yeah, it's true that Goldman's balance sheet at that time was levered like 30 to one, right, on equity. And today it's only 10 to one. Okay, that's good. That's an improvement. Um, we did get some new rules that basically increased the capital ad adequacy requirements for banks. But 10 to one is still kind of insane, <laughs> number one. Number two, these banks are even bigger than they used to be. So they were already too big to fail. Now they're even bigger. Um, Clearly, they've captured their regulators, um, right? That's one thing I talk about in the book is the, is the revolving door. The genius move of former Goldman CEO, Hank Paulson, who managed to become a billionaire on Goldman stock in the 20 or so years he made his career there, right up to the, just before the financial crisis. Then he left to go run the Treasury Department, and there's a rule that allows you to basically liquidate your entire portfolio, avoid capital gains. So he made his, you know, at least hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars in gains in Goldman stock, building the firm, you know, doing his part basically to build in this systematic doomed to fail fragility in the financial system all the way, cashed out, moved to government, didn't pay tax. And then, of course, was in a position to save his buddies, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, save AIG, get all the bailouts going. So, um, yeah, it's just a story that we need to never forget. And frankly, 
that system that was in place with all the problems of incentives and all the corruption is largely still in place today. And this is why we Bitcoin. Um, this is our vote out of this broken system. Um, it turns out that more and more are voting with us. And uh, by our powers combined, we're going to build this new financial system that's going to be better than the old one, that's going to solve a lot of these problems. So I have great hope for the future uh, for Bitcoin because of those facts and circumstances and this sort of front row seat I've seen, I've had to the to the financial system and the problems with it and how it almost came apart already twice in my career. And it would have almost been three times, like had I graduated, you know, a little earlier, like into the, into the tech bubble, the, uh, you know, the, the internet bubble, it would have been the third time. So yeah, man, it, uh, it's sobering to see the world, uh, uh, with orange eyes. Uh, and I'm glad we all do. And, uh, yeah, so I, I encourage everyone, you know, keep learning, keep reading Bitcoin magazine, keep watching all the awesome new, uh, you know, video and, and, uh, audio content that you guys are coming out with, uh, read books. Um, I'm still amazed at how I still learn new stuff in Bitcoin, you know, even though I've written a lot and talked a lot about it, I'm still getting new perspectives, um, you know, from, from smart people coming up all the time in, uh, in this segment or in this, uh, market yourselves included. So keep up the good work. I really appreciate that, Andy. And, uh, everyone, if you're very, if you're interested in checking out his book, it's called why buy Bitcoin, um, check it out wherever you buy books. And Andy, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Twitter is Ed, at Edstrom Andrew, correct? You you got that right. That's the Twitter handle, and of course the 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 last thing I'll mention is you know is Swan, which is uh, you know one of the things I'm doing is voting with my time um, working at Swan, and uh, you know for those who want to uh, dollar cost average save in Bitcoin, um, you know check it out. Yeah, be sure. And Andy goes on Swan Signal a lot with Preston. He was just on, I believe, yesterday or two days ago. Uh, it wasn't quite that recent, but uh, it may have been a replay. It might have been a re-release, but I think we have done, I can't remember, it's, it's either, I think it's seven or eight episodes, and we do a quarterly review, and we have a lot of fun at it, and uh, Brady Swenson from Citizen Bitcoin is host, and uh, yeah, definitely encourage people to check it out. Definitely. If you enjoyed this conversation, make sure you follow Andy, check out the book, and check out some of his other stuff. Andy, it was an absolute pleasure getting to know chat. Thank you for joining us today, man. Thanks, Q. Pleasure was mine. Yeah. 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 Yeah.